God's word. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul has been uh, talking with the elders in Ephesus, and so he is sharing with them words of wisdom. This begins all the way back in, I believe, chapter, it's chapter 20, I believe, verse 13. And so I'd like to read to you this morning from 13 to 31. In Acts chapter 20, going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board, and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Other translations have that, to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen. As we continue in worship this morning, it's Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. That, uh, that last song there is really the anthem of, of, our, of what the Word is saying to us this morning, that we are called to lift our souls and our hearts to Jesus and to Him alone. 
And the problem is that Jesus has commissioned and sent forth men to preach his word in his name. But not all men who claim to represent Christ actually do. Which is why the title for the message this morning is to beware of the wolves within. An important exhortation. Because there are men, there are individuals who will come forth seeking to represent Christ, but have ulterior motives that are not interested in exalting the name of Jesus, but rather exalting themselves. So we are called to lift our souls to the Lord, which means that a part of worshiping the Lord, part of giving our lives to the Lord, means that we have to exercise discernment in who stands before us to preach God's word to us. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, uh, I'm just going to read this in a second. With that, I just want to say thank you to the worship team this morning. It's fantastic worship. It really was great. I want to say thank you for uh, Tyler Kirkland joining us this morning. And uh, you may not be aware of this, but I'm going to share this with you. Tyler is expecting her second child. So we rejoice and we celebrate, yes, for, for that. Um, and with that comes morning sickness, which means that uh, sometimes she is excited to come and lead worship early in the morning, and she's always excited to come and lead worship in the morning, but sometimes she's less physically able to do so this morning. So Natika stepped in for a, a little bit there, and we just want to say thank you so much to Tyler for, for leading us this morning and the worship team. You guys did fantastic. I also just want to say thanks to the audiovisual team. It sounds a little different in the house this morning, and sometimes those things just happen. And uh, we know you guys are giving it your best. The pulpit mic we haven't used in like four months now or whatever it's been, and we plug it in for the first time this morning for Roman to give his, his report, and it's ringing and all of that. We, we trust that it sounds good online. We don't really know how it sounds online because we're all here in the sanctuary. But uh, I just want to say that it is a, a difficult job, and if you haven't ever sat back there and stared at a, a thing of about a thousand buttons, you don't really understand how the the stress that Lydia goes through or that our, our audiovisual people go through every week. Again, we just want to say thank you for that. But this morning, being blessed as we are with so many wonderful servants and, and uh, people who love us and care for us and work for us to bring us the word every week, this morning we want to be reminded as, as Paul exhorts these elders from my, in Miletus, these elders from Ephesus, he makes the statement, and I invite you, we're just going to read this really quick, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll, we'll start to to pick it apart and dig into it. Paul, having had just said that he didn't shrink back, he wasn't, woo, he didn't shrink back from declaring the whole word of God. He, he was courageous. He, he proclaimed God's word. Last week, we saw that the opposite of cowardice is not courage. The opposite of cowardice is faith. And Paul didn't shrink back, but in faith, he proclaimed the whole counsel of God's word. And now he's going to turn having spent a huge chunk of his, uh, his speech to these guys talking about his ministry and, and the time that he served there in Ephesus, in Asia with them, he now turns here in verse 28 to begin to admonish and to encourage, to exhort uh, these elders from Ephesus. And he says in verse 28, "...pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church." Of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, he calls them fierce wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Pastors are called to be shepherds. Elders are called to shepherd God's people. And Paul says, 
fierce wolves are coming. I know they're coming. They will not spare the flock. He goes on, he says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for this time in your word. We say thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to have you speak to us from the scriptures. Lord, we remember this morning our brothers and sisters at home, those who are not able to gather here with us, Lord. We pray, God, for your blessing on their lives. And Lord, for all of us, all who, who are a part of this church, wherever we may be, whether listening on the radio or following along uh, on the internet, Lord, we, we pray, God, that you would just drive this truth home into our hearts this morning, that not everyone who holds themselves forth as a shepherd truly is. Not everyone who would claim to be a pastor actually has our best interests at heart. Not all seek to proclaim the whole counsel of your word. Lord, give us insight this morning from this admonition that Paul gives to these Ephesian elders. Help us as a church body to take this instruction very, very seriously, knowing that it is from your word that we have our life, our salvation, our blessing, our spiritual vitality, and that if we don't have your word, we will suffer and shrivel up and die, Lord. We need you. We need your word. So drive this home to us this morning that this is an important responsibility that we all have to take very care, very careful, to pay very careful attention, and to take great care in how the word is proclaimed here in our church and from this church, how it sounds forth to be heard by all those who have not heard the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful. Help us to learn from this this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As many of you know, I once served as a Marine in the United States Marine Corps. And having served in the Marines, there were many, uh, many wonderful joys that came with that. There really were. Uh, there's a lot of fun, I think you could say, for a 20, for 19, 20-year-old young men to be able to shoot guns and blow stuff up and have that be his you know, his full-time job, you know, eight hours, 10 hours, 24 hours a day. Um, but there are other, what I call joys that come with it. I use, uh, for those of you listening, it's, I'm using the scare quotes here. There are other joys that come along with being a Marine. And one of the joys, uh, particularly that I got to experience in boot camp at the initial training to become a Marine, was the joy of pulling what is called fire watch. Fire watch. Um, this is... Uh, the, the Marine Corps used to house Marines in wooden barracks, and so during boot camp, they would take one of the recruits and they would task him with the responsibility of standing guard for an hour to make sure that this wooden barracks that was heated uh, by a, a typical wood-burning stove wouldn't catch fire and burn down. There was an actual fire hazard. Now, this was way back 200 years ago when this was the situation. Today's barracks on military bases are made out of concrete and steel, they're heated with uh, boilers in the basement. There's virtually no chance of them catching on fire now. Nevertheless, traditions live on, and this tradition lived on. And in 
in uh, boot camp, they would choose a series of Marines to stand post for one hour throughout the night to stand fire watch, okay? They've kept the tradition. Um, the reason why they've kept the tradition is because it, uh, it builds discipline into the Marine. It, uh, it builds uh, vigilance into the Marine. It helps them to understand that they have a responsibility for the entire platoon. Uh, new fire watches quickly learn their first standing general order, which says, I will take charge of this post and all government property in view, and I will quit my post only when properly relieved. Our drill instructors in boot camp would love to catch us staring out the window, um, especially early on in boot camp when you didn't have all of your 10 standing general orders fully memorized. They would catch you not paying attention as far as they were concerned, and they would drill you on your 10 standing general orders. Uh, and then if you didn't get them right, of course, you'd have to drop and give them like 100 or 1,000 push-ups, some obscene number. You'd be there all day. And I remember pulling Firewatch one particular evening. It was about 2 a.m. And of course, we call it coming on deck. The door opens, the guy walks in, stepping on deck was uh, the drill sergeant. And of course, I was staring out the window uh, because it's boring. There's nothing really to watch at 2 a.m. in the morning. And so you're kind of just looking around, seeing what's, what's what. Of course, they hated that. They wanted you to be like focused at attention, staring at the door for when they would come on deck, when they would enter the door. Of course, I wasn't, but I snapped to and immediately gave the proper greeting. And uh, he said to me, what do you think you're doing? having caught me looking right outside the door, and I quoted my first standing order to take charge of my post and all government property in view. I was looking out the window at all the government property that I could see to keep the watch. I thought it was a clever response. He didn't appreciate it very much, and so I did push-ups. But the, the, the idea here is that your job is to watch, to stay alert, and you'd better not let a drill sergeant catch you sleeping on the job or you're going to be doing some serious push-ups. Vigilance is definitely required. The military alone, it, it, they aren't the only ones that require vigilance. The Lord Jesus calls for this same vigilance from his disciples. And in Mark 13, Jesus gives us this teaching. He says, concerning that day or that hour, this is the hour of his return, no one knows. No one knows the day or the hour that Christ is going to come back. He says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He says, be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his own work to do, and he commands that the doorkeeper stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says, for you don't know the hour when the master of this house will come, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping." Jesus concludes with this exhortation. He says, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, stay alert, stay vigilant. Jesus addresses them about the end times, and he foretells of a time when the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, as he calls it, is going to desecrate the place of worship. He says, this is coming. He says there's going to be terrible persecution against the church during this time, and there will be people living in the last days. And of course, the church is still called to be a witness and a light, but nevertheless, the church will suffer and be persecuted. 
Jesus warns his followers not to try to set a date for when he will return. What's most important to Christ is that we be faithful until the day that he does return, until the day that he does come for us. And so from that, we understand that there are many elements to being faithful to Jesus. As you're just working your way through the, the gospel of, Matt, of Mark, he says that in order to be faithful to him, we're to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him in Mark chapter 8. In order to be faithful, to be awake, to be alert, we are called to radically remove any cause for sin in our lives. We're to strive for holiness. That's from Mark chapter 9, verse 39. We are to be at peace with one another. There ought not to be any strife or division within the body. That's from Mark chapter 9, verse 50. And of course, he says that we are called to go into all the world and to proclaim the good news. This is from a little further on, Mark chapter 16. All of this is wrapped up in the parable that Jesus says he leaves his servants, each with his work to do, and he exhorts us to stay awake, to stay vigilant. Now, the reason I start there is because as Jesus is exhorting all of us to stay vigilant and to stay awake and to be alert and to be faithful, not worrying so much about when the Lord is going to return, but staying faithful until the day that he returns, the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 20, he picks up on that exact same exhortation and he gives it to the pastors of the church in Ephesus as they've had this rendezvous in Miletus. What he says to those pastors is important for them as they're shepherding their congregation. But in the same way that Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Mark, what I say to you, I say to all, we can look at this exhortation that Paul gives here in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders, and we can understand that what he is saying to them is just as applicable to us today as it was to them in the first century. What Paul is saying to them, he is saying to all of us. And therefore, what we understand from this passage with what, Mark, with what Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark is that dark days are coming. We know wolves will enter in. Therefore, knowing this to be the case, the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves are coming in among you. They won't spare the flock. And verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men. Men will rise up. They will come into it, speaking twisted things for the sake of drawing the disciples away after themselves. Therefore, he says, stay awake, stay alert. It is the same idea as what is being given to the Marine Sentry pulling fire watch duty. This idea is being given to you and to me today. We have a responsibility to stay awake, to be alert. The hour grows late. We get tired. We grow weary in our responsibilities. And yet, we must still maintain vigilance. We must keep a watch. Here in verse 28, there are some really strong uh, language used in these, in these three verses. In verse 28, there is an imperative. In verse 29, there is a perfect tense verb. And then again in uh, verse 30, there's going to be a future. And then it concludes in verse 31 with another imperative. Th these are really strong verbs 
Uh, my brother, Roman, having translated the New Testament, can tell you these are some really powerful, there, there's some powerful grammar going on here. This is a, a very strong exhortation. Paul says, pay very great attention, and it's in the imperative. It's, it's very important that you understand that. You say, well, what is an imperative? What, what is an imperative verb, Pastor Josh? What does that mean? I, uh, a number of years ago, and I, I still kind of get dragged into this today, even though I, I don't enjoy it, and, but nevertheless, you still get involved with it, doing it. A number of years ago, I was teaching uh, 16, 17, 18-year-old students uh, to drive. You know, they've got their learner's permit, and you take them out on lunch break or whatever to go and drive, and of course, you're terrified for your life because they're not looking or checking blind spots or breaking, you know, basic things like that. And uh, I can remember driving down the freeway with, with uh, one of our young people here at our church whom I love, okay, and you're probably watching online, you, you know I love you. And uh, she just kept her foot on the gas longer than I felt comfortable as the car in front of us was braking. And so I was worried that my truck, because it's my vehicle we're driving, was going to just slam right into the back of this vehicle. Now, in that moment, if I was talking in a normal verb tense, normal as to what we would find in the Greek New Testament, I might say something like, why don't you consider braking? Or braking is a good idea. But I didn't use those verb tenses. I used the imperative verb tense. What is the difference between a regular sort of suggestion, break, versus an imperative verb? It goes like this. This would be normal, break. This is imperative. Break! You know, you just, it's a, it's a strong sort of do this now, okay? Do this now. And that's what we find here. This is a weird shift for Paul in his speech. He has started off all the way back at the beginning of chapter 20. He's talking about his ministry. You know I did this. I went through trials and tribulations and plots of the Jews. You know that I gave you the whole counsel of God's word. I didn't shrink back from it. I wasn't afraid to give it to you. I was faithful. He doesn't use the word courage. The implication is that he was faithful to give them the whole counsel of God's word. And he he talks on and on and on about the example that he set. And now he shifts and he begins to address them. And he starts off with an imperative command. This is not a suggestion. He says, pay attention. Follow what I'm telling you. And he, he he says basically in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. He talks about the other elders that are gathered there. All of you are to pay attention to yourselves. He's talking to the pastors of the church at Ephesus. And then he says, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, here in this particular chapter in the book of Acts, we find these terms are used interchangeably. If you flip back to the very beginning in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, uh, it says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders. They're they're referred to as elders there. And then down here now in, in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you. And this term is used, overseers. So elders and overseers, we find, are used interchangeably. And here within this same passage, he says, to care, he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and the ESV translates it, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
Now, the word is translated care in the ESV, but it's from the Greek poimen. It, it means to shepherd. We use the expression today to, to pastor. So here in this chapter, we see elder, we see overseer, and we see pastor or shepherd all used interchangeably, all describing the same office. Today, we basically just, we understand that the church has deacons, and we, we understand that the church has pastors, and, and that is because that is probably the preferred way that men who, who are in the pastorate prefer to think of themselves. They, they prefer to think of themselves as shepherds, and so that term, pastor, is the term that is most commonly used and, and adopted by the church at large, but when we look at the rest of the scriptures, when we look at the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, we find that the most common term used all throughout the New Testament to describe this group of men is elder. Now, we don't think of ourselves as elders per se, but the idea here is that these are individuals who are knowledgeable of the scriptures, and although elder doesn't necessarily have to refer to how old they are, it is clearly an indication to their wisdom and their knowledge and their understanding of the scriptures. Ideally, the older you get, the wiser you become. And, and for the seniors, you know that that's true most of the time, but by no means is that an absolute truth. You can get old and still be as silly and immature as the day you graduated high school. This isn't an absolute reference to age. It is, however, an, a reference to one's mastery and maturity within the Scriptures. Paul's first exhortation is pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, the church in Ephesus in the first century probably isn't anything like a megachurch. It's probably nothing like what we saw in Jerusalem in the early days of the preaching of the gospel after Pentecost. Probably doesn't number in the multiple thousands. But Paul still seems to indicate, however small or however large this church is, we don't know. But Paul seems to indicate, talking to these guys, that there's more than one of them. Our understanding today in most churches is you got a congregation and uh, there's going to be multiple deacons and, and there's going to be just one pastor or one elder. What we know from that model is that that is extremely dangerous. Just to have one person with the book who is entrusted into that office, who has the authority to preach the word, and he's going to be sort of this grand poobah that's going to tell you how everything needs to be. Paul is saying here in this warning to these elders from Ephesus that they need to be paying very careful attention to themselves. If there's only one pastor or elder or overseer, whatever term you want to use, in the church... How is that man to be cared for by another pastor? The idea seems to be here as we're looking at this passage that churches in the New Testament had multiple pastors or multiple elders as the, the, the most common term used here. And the reason for that was because there was a danger within the church that you could get a guy who held himself forward as a faithful you know, representative of Jesus Christ coming to preach the word of God but that there would actually be ulterior motives in his heart. And even men with the best of intentions, who are fully sold out and passionate to the Lord, still have blind spots, still have sins in their lives that, that obscure their vision, that prevent them from seeing things that they really ought to see. And so Paul's exhortation here is an urgent warning to the church, but even in offering that warning, 
We see there's a practical, very, very basic instruction that we need to follow within our church. Danger can come from the pastor if he does not rightly divide the word of truth. But even if a pastor starts out rightly dividing the word of truth, giving the whole counsel of God's word, he still must have someone holding him accountable to keep him faithful. In other words, he can't be all alone at the top of the, you know, at the top of the food chain, so to speak, at the top of the pyramid. He must be submitted to his congregation. Ultimately, he is there to shepherd them, but he must be accountable to them. And ultimately, there ought to be more than one pastor. There should be multiple elders. We use this term, there should be a plurality of elders within the church, which is why we have here at First Baptist Church myself and Pastor Ryan. We're equals. We have different gifts. We have different abilities. We, we have different strengths and weaknesses. We speak into each other's lives. We thank God for each other because we complement each other. We strengthen each other. And together, as multiple pastors, plurality of elders in the church, we're able to better meet the needs of this growing congregation. On February the 28th, God willing, assuming uh, everything goes well with the uh, restrictions, we're going to have a AGCM, in which we're going to present to you Tyler Walkton. And for those of you who know Tyler, he's, different than, he's way different than me, and he's way different than Pastor Ryan, and yet we celebrate that. We, we want to welcome him into the eldership to begin the ministry that God has for him to bless you, and also to be a part of the team here, because we are called to be a team, to hold ourselves accountable to each other, to speak into each other's lives. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The idea being that our spiritual lives will govern and dictate how we shepherd and how we minister and how we preach, and that how we, how we are within our own hearts will overflow into how we shepherd and therefore how you grow spiritually as well. So we have to have a plurality of elders for our own sake, for our own health, spiritual health and well-being, but we also have to have it for all of you. Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Brings us to verse 29. The next thing that Paul says is he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He calls them wolves. But again, this is an interesting verb tense. It's perfect. Uh, The idea of a perfect verb, a verb that is in the perfect tense, is that this is action that has come to completion. Paul is saying, I fully am convinced, I know. It's not, he's not saying, I am pretty sure, or I think I understand that this is going to happen. He's saying it, though it is a future tense idea, there's going to be down the road something that is going to happen. And although we always have to speak about future events with a degree of humility, here Paul is saying, I am not at all in doubt about this. Using the perfect verb tense, he says, this is going to happen. And that's the idea that you need to know, First Baptist Church. You need to be aware that it is not a matter of if it might happen. It's only a question of when. If you take great care to ensure that you have godly pastors, that there are multiple pastors working together, holding each other accountable to the Scriptures, then you 
have every reason to believe that there's a high degree of protection. But if you don't take care, you need to know that the threat is very real. And a lack of vigilance on your part will open the door for what Paul describes as a wolf entering into the church. He calls them a wolf. He says, I know this is going to happen. And I'm telling you today, this is happening. We see it in churches all across the country. This is happening. Jesus said it would happen. Paul said it would happen. It's happening. He knows it's going to happen. It is going to happen. It can happen. It will happen at some point here. Therefore, we must be very attentive and very careful about whom we put in to the eldership here at First Baptist Church. That's the exhortation. He says, fierce wolves will come. They will come in among you. He says, they will arise from your own selves. And he makes this statement, they will not spare the flock. Uh, It's been said that imitation is the greatest form of flattery. But this is not always true. What is true is that imitation is always imitation. Imitation is always imitation. The reason why it's not always flattery is because deceivers will attempt to portray themselves as something that they are not. Not because they admire it, but because they need to deceive others in order to gain the ends for which they are striving. Imitation is not always flattery, but imitation is always imitation. So the most cunning imposter, the one who wants to come in and steal away the flock after themselves, he must look as much like the real thing as he can. This is why Paul calls him a wolf. Paul doesn't come up with this metaphor or this analogy on his own. This is drawn from Christ's words in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus warns his disciples. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He goes on to pose a question. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs gathered from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. He goes on to warn, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he concludes, in this way, you will know them, you will recognize them by their fruits. Why is there an urgency in this warning? It is because they look like the real deal. They are very much so on the outside. They have the appearance of being genuine shepherds. uh, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they look like a normal shepherd on the outside, but there's something fundamentally different. Their nature is different on the inside. They are there to devour you. This is the analogy that Jesus puts forward that Paul picks up when he warns the Ephesian elders. He says, when you guys are pastoring your church, understand that from among your own selves will come wolves. They're going to come. It's going to happen. And this is the basis for why we need to pay attention. So when it comes to pastors, none of us are going to just appoint someone to be a pastor who's crazy. We're just not. You just don't get very far with crazy. If someone on the outside looks crazy, 
well, then you're going to, and he says, oh, I think I should be a pastor here. Well, you just sort of pat him on the back and you say, okay, we'll call you. You don't call us, we'll call you, let you know, because he's crazy. So, of course, the, sh- the wolves to which Jesus is alluding, they don't look crazy. They look convincing. They look compelling, which means we have to look very closely. We have to scrutinize. We have to discern their real motives. So the question is, how are they different? What is different from the wolf in sheep's clothing to the genuine article? Number one, I think we can discern from Paul's emphasis here in his whole speech to the Ephesian elders, number one, they don't preach the whole counsel of God's word. They, they just pick and choose. Perhaps they sugarcoat. Perhaps they, they engage in a disproportionate incorrect balancing of certain truths. They talk heavily about God's grace while neglecting to ever mention the reality of God's judgment. They talk about God's love, but they neglect to mention things like repentance and sanctification. And and yes, Christ dies for us on the cross just as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. His desire is to work in our lives to make us holy. These types of things can be emphasized like grace and love, while other things can be neglected or ignored or downplayed. Or they might just invent entirely different things out of thin air. The idea, though, is that they are not preaching God's word. They are preaching their version of God's word, or they're preaching something else entirely that has nothing to do with the scriptures. So this is how you will know them. They alter God's word essentially to make promises or to soothe egos. They do not confront you. They do not seek to bring conviction. You are never troubled greatly at what they say because they are interested in your accolades. They are interested in your praise of them. But be careful. Every car is driven by some kind of a fuel. And for the true preacher of God's word, he is delighting in the scriptures And he preaches from the scriptures, and it brings him pleasure to know God in the scriptures and to share what he's learning with you. But for an individual who is not having that relationship with Christ, who is distorting the scriptures for some other end, the question is, what drives him? What is his fuel? What keeps him going? You are his fuel. There's a reason Jesus calls him a wolf. There's a reason why Paul says he's there to devour the flock. He will not spare the flock. You are his food. You are his energy, not Christ. He drives his energy from you. You say, I don't know that this is really happening in this day and age. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. You will recall if you are breathing air that Donald Trump recently lost his bid for re-election to the presidency of the United States. The reason why I say you will recall that if you're breathing air is because how could you not have come across this piece of information with everything that is on the news every night? What you might not be aware of is that this loss of a re-election is creating great trouble in charismatic and Pentecostal churches all across the United States. Jeremiah Johnson, a Charlotte, North Carolina-based charismatic evangelist prophesied in 2015 that President that Donald Trump would win the 2016 election and would gain the White House. 
As a result of that prophecy, which, uh, and for those of you listening on the radio, I'm using scare quotes, which came true, Charismatics the world over saw a lost opportunity and began to make a whole truckload of additional prophecies regarding Donald Trump's re-election to the presidency. In a Facebook post published on January the 7th, and that date is significant given what happened on January the 6th, Jeremiah Johnson wished to repent for his mistaken prophecy that Donald Trump would gain re-election to the White House. Quote, he says, quote, over the last 72 hours, this is after he posted on Facebook, so he apologized and he said it was wrong, it wasn't a true prophecy, I repent. And there was a there was a la- there was a a a, la- a lashback lashback backlash that's the word I'm looking for there was a backlash over the last 72 hours he says I have received multiple death threats and thousands upon thousands of emails from Christians saying the nastiest and most vulgar things that I have ever heard toward my family and my ministry. He says, I have been labeled a coward, a sellout, a traitor to the Holy Spirit. And I have been cussed out by individuals claiming to be Christians on my Facebook feed at least 500 times. 500 times! He says, we have lost ministry partners every hour and counting. He goes on to say, quote, I fully expected to be called a false prophet, but I could never have dreamed in my wildest imagination that so much satanic attack and witchcraft would come from charismatic and prophetic people. He says, I have been flabbergasted at the barrage of continued conspiracy theories being sent every minute our way and the pure hatred that is being unleashed towards me and my family. To my great heartache, I'm convinced parts of the prophetic and charismatic movement are far sicker are far sicker than I ever could have dreamed. I truthfully never realized how absolutely triggered and ballistic thousands upon thousands of saints would get about Donald Trump. You could have seen this coming if you had looked at God's word. You could have anticipated the damage and the heartache if you had respected the book. A popular leader... A popular scholar, J. Gordon Melton, he is the compiler of the Encyclopedia of American Religions, and he oversees a prestigious department. Uh, He's the dean of faculty uh, at the Religious Studies Department at Baylor University in Texas. I mean, he puts together the Encyclopedia of Modern American Christian Movements, and he makes an interesting comment. He says that at least 40 charismatic Christian leaders predicted Trump's re-election starting around 2018, quote, only a handful of prophets got it right on the 2016 election, so they all jumped on the 2018 election, and they were all wrong. They were all wrong. He goes on to make this comment. This is an article that I read in Christianity Today, quote, last November when... Prophetic evangelist Cindy Jacobs had her meeting in Dallas. None of the prophets at that meeting, and it was the elite of the elite prophets who were there, 
none of them hinted that anything like the coronavirus was coming. They missed it. And that has come back to haunt them. So they wanted to jump on the idea that they were going to redeem themselves by prophesying Trump's reelection, only to miss that as well. And what's fascinating is that the truth is clear. God says regarding his word, when he says that something is going to come to pass, it's going to come to pass. And all these men claimed to be speaking God's word and to be prophesying from the Holy Spirit, and they all claimed that Donald Trump would be re-elected. And now their congregations are utterly divided. You have, on the one hand, people who've lost faith in these men who are called to hold forth the word of God. They no longer believe they have credibility, and they are abandoning the church in droves. And you have, on the other hand, people who have lost faith and confidence in these men, not because of what they prophesied, but because they repented of it. And therefore, they think that they're not telling the truth, that they have abandoned the Holy Spirit, that they're going along with what the rest of the world is believing, and, you know, they're not believers and Christians. What a horrible legacy. The heartache and the damage that is done. Why would you prophesy such a thing? Well, Melton tells you. Only one person called Donald Trump's election, prophesied Donald Trump's election in 2016, and he rocketed to international celebrity. So everybody else starts to proclaim it. Why? Is it because they're interested in actually holding out God's word for you to be edified, to be sanctified, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Jesus Christ? Or is it for their own personal celebrity? The Holy Spirit didn't talk to anyone about Donald Trump being guaranteed re-election. How do I know that? Because he didn't win. God is never mistaken. God is never wrong. Humility is definitely called forth. The sad thing is, we have lost our way. Many of these men have lost their way in terms of what it is that God wants to say and how it is that he is called to speak. The Apostle Paul says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you all of God's word, giving you the whole of God's word. And then he says, men will rise up. They will rise up speaking twisted things, he says, in order to draw away the disciples away from Jesus, this is the implication, away from Christ after themselves, to exalt themselves, to lift themselves up. This is about their personal celebrity. This is about their personal accolades. This is about them being famous and highly regarded. This is not about making much of Jesus Christ. Men, and increasingly women, who fail to preach the whole counsel of God's word, creatively omit certain parts of it, or overemphasize other elements without the proper biblical balance, men who tamper with God's word or preach things in church other than God's word are playing at a dangerous game of masquerade. It is absolutely masquerade. They're putting a mask on. It's a carnival atmosphere. It is with great costumes that these real life-sized imposters hold themselves forward as genuine shepherds. Those who come to the carnival enjoy the wide spaces, the interesting attractions. They enjoy the divergent spirituality. They've come to a shiny and wonderful fair with great music, theater-style dynamic lighting, 
And of course, comfortable seats. And I'm not knocking the seats. We have comfortable seats here, and I love those things. The dramas are captivating. The stories told are spellbinding. And above all, they're dazzled by what they encounter. The people there genuinely seem to want you to stay. They genuinely seem to like you. They genuinely seem to want to be your friend. And of course, your desire to be wanted, your desire to be loved, all of this to be cared for, your desire to be cared for, all of this leads you, persuades you to stay, even though there's something weird about what is being spoken. So you stay. You stay. The possibility of something great occurring is always present at the carnival fair. But something you may fail to notice is that even though it seems spectacular, everyone's still just wearing a costume. What's on the inside is not what is being portrayed on the outside. In the end, you always leave those worship services feeling better about yourself, sensing a warmth of goodness, believing that God is really excited to give you exactly what you desire, And there is undoubtedly a sense of satisfaction and enjoyment that lingers with you throughout the week. It's pleasant. It feels far more powerful than what was preached over at that conservative Baptist church where the guy went on and on for an hour out of the book of Acts, three verses, good grief. Whatever you experienced at that church, at that pastor, if God's word was not the focus if the whole counsel of God's word was not proclaimed, well then, it just wasn't worship. It wasn't of the Lord. And the longer you linger there, what you will find is that you are putting on the same costume. Run from those churches. The Apostle Paul goes on and he makes this statement. He says that they are there to draw away the disciples after themselves And then he concludes, verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering for three years that I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. If you look at verse 28, he says, pay careful attention. And if you look at verse 31, he says, therefore be alert. He's repeating himself. Pay careful attention. Be alert. He begins with this this exhortation to pay attention. And he concludes with the same exhortation to be alert. Alert. Therefore, these are things which we are called to be very careful about. We have to make sure that we are hearing God's word and only God's word. Nothing else should suffice. We can take delight or pleasure in nothing else. Therefore, he says, be alert in the imperative. He, he goes on to say how it is that we are to be alert. He says, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Again, Paul started this whole thing off with this really long discourse on the example that he had set for them. And now in his exhortation, he's saying, be alert, pay attention, be alert, remembering how I ministered. In other words, you understand the true from the fake by being very familiar with the true. Our best way of discerning the real from the false is to start with the real. We obviously start with God's word. Even if we would struggle in our day and age to find a legitimate faithful pastor, we still have the testimony of the scriptures. We can still look in God's word and we can see what real men of God who hold forth the word of God 
faithfully, we can see what they look like. You never have to be troubled about whether or not you're ever going to find a church where you can get a clear-cut example of what a faithful pastor looks like because you've got it all over the New Testament. For all time, for all of eternity, God has, has found it very wise in his omniscient knowledge to give us an example of a faithful preacher from the Scriptures. None of us are deprived. None of us have opportunity to discover. We are called, all of us, therefore, to look, to understand, and with that knowledge, to be faithful. He says, remembering me, how I ministered to you for three years, he says. This idea of remembering or remembrance is crucial. It's a crucial spiritual discipline. You may not realize this, but this is all throughout the Scriptures, God, speaking in Exodus chapter 20, says to remember the Sabbath day. In Numbers chapter 15, again, a book, as as Brother Roman pointed out a few minutes ago, a book that we don't read often. But in Numbers chapter 15, he says, you shall remember all of my commandments to do them. In Isaiah, O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. Malachi chapter 4, remember the law of my servant Moses. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And of course, Jesus gives the ultimate exhortation to remembrance with regards to communion. This wonderful time where we celebrate our unity in the cross. He says, He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. How we practice our faith will require remembering. It will require remembering. And there's two pieces to that. There's two pieces to that. The first piece, of course, to remembrance is comprehension knowing how to do it. Like, we've all learned how to ride a bike when we were kids. We know how to ride it, and we can get on it, and we can ride a bike. Some of us haven't ridden a bike in over a decade. And you know how to do it, but if you were to just get a bike out of the garage and to go for a ride, you might find yourself a little wobbly at first, kind of falling around and trying to remember exactly how to maintain your balance. But you could remember in time. You'd pick it up. And so we understand that with remembrance, There is, first and foremost, this idea of comprehension, a basic understanding. But there's another part of it, too, which is really what the Scriptures are emphasizing. Familiarity. Familiarity. You can learn how to drive a nail with a hammer, take a nail and bash it into the wood. I remember as a kid helping my father add on an addition to our home, and I was pretty good at that. I could hold a nail, one whack, let it go, and just beat it home. I understood how to swing the hammer. I had a knowledge of it. I was very familiar with it. If you were to come to me today with a nail and a hammer and say, do like you did when you were 19, 20 years old and drive this thing home with two wax. Mm, I love my thumb and forefinger. I love them. And I'm probably going to just gently tap that thing to get it started before I, before I wail on it. was not like that when I was a kid. I could just bam. And then, bam, it was done. Maybe three, maybe three. But for sure, I had multiple times where I drove it with two wax. Could I do that today? No. Two reasons. I have a DeWalt cordless drill that I use. (laughs) Easy. 
Easy, no effort involved. But I just don't work in construction. I have a life that sits at a desk with books and papers. I don't do that kind of work. So I understand it. It's not like I am totally oblivious as to what a hammer is or how to drive a nail. But I've lost my familiarity. Paul, in his, in his exhortation to remember, what he is saying is, we need to understand, but we must never lose familiarity with what we have understood. Wolves are incredibly clever. They're incredibly cunning. They can trick us. And we can remember from the word of God, what a faithful shepherd ought to look like. But if we're not constantly looking at the word of God and looking at our own shepherds, we begin to lose that familiarity. We, we know this is kind of what it should look like, but that second piece of remembrance is equally important. Familiarity. If we're not familiar, if it's not fresh in our minds every day, That provides just exactly the kind of wedge that a wolf will use to wiggle his way in. And so as we approach our AGCM on February 28th, we've taken nearly four years now with Brother Tyler to evaluate him, to question him, to scrutinize. The board of deacons and the elders here are very pleased to bring him to you for your consideration. But that by no means absolves you from your own responsibility. We need to have a plurality of elders, but we need elders, not imposters, not imitators. Therefore, you are called to know from the scriptures what a pastor ought to look like, and how they're to be faithful to the scriptures before you vote to approve Tyler Walkton. And I would encourage you to do that. You need a pastor in your life. There's one piece of this text which I skipped over, but I'd like to draw your attention to it now. All the way back in verse 28, the Apostle Paul begins his exhortation. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders or pastors to care or to shepherd the church of God. Notice this, which he obtained with his own blood. Did you catch that, church? The implication is that you are precious to Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He gave his everything in order to atone for your sin so that you could know him, so that you could hear his voice. He longs to have that relationship with you. He died to have that relationship with you. This morning, as we conclude, there are two things that you need to take away, both warning and exhortation. The warning is this. If you're a wolf, you should be utterly terrified. Your destruction approaches. Hear the counsel of God's word. Fall in love with Jesus. Make it about him and what he says in his book. If you're here this morning and you're a sheep, hear that warning and understand it's given because of the Savior's love for you. The wolves need to be warned, but the sheep need to be encouraged. This is a responsibility you have for your own protection. 
And Christ speaks this word to you because he will not tolerate you having a relationship with anyone else, lifting your soul to anyone else. He is a jealous God, and he wants you all for himself. When I was in the Marines, standing fire watch, trying to stay alert, it started off, it started off with fear. I was terrified that the guy was going to walk in, the drill sergeant was going to walk in, I was going to get caught, and then I was going to do a thousand push-ups. That's what it started off as. And I think that's the appropriate place to start. There is always a responsibility that we have to do as God's people, and failure to do it should always lead us to being afraid. But in time, I came to where I actually relished, especially that, that watch right before Reveille would sound when everybody had to jump out of their racks and, and start their day. I came to where I would even request, if I'm going to stand fire watch tonight, can I have that last shift? The reason was because I knew a couple of Marines in my outfit, whom I loved, we'd become friends. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to give them that extra little time. I would go about 10 minutes before Reveille would sound, and I would just kind of shake them awake at night. I would leave my post, which in and of itself was a very dangerous thing to do, but nevertheless, I would. I would go and I would give them a little heads up so I can get a little extra head start on their day. The reason for that is because I understood that the drill instructor, he cared for us. He was drilling us so that we would be faithful to do our duty, so that we would survive when we entered into combat. And embracing that same heart that our sergeants had for us, I began to do that for my fellow Marines. There's two ways to hear this exhortation today. Warning or love? My prayer is that you would hear it and understand that you are called to stay awake and to be alert. Yes, you should be afraid if you fail in this obligation, but you should hear it as an exhortation to loving your brothers and sisters. Church, let us pay attention. Let us be careful that we hear only God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for speaking to us. Lord, we know that you are a jealous God, that your word should hold sway in our lives. Father, our prayer is for so many of our sister churches in Kamloops and across Canada and around the world who are afraid of what the world will think of them. And as a result, it leads to them pulling their punches, so to speak, sugarcoating the gospel truth. Ultimately, Lord, it leads to not giving the whole counsel of Scripture. Lord, that is a very dangerous road to walk down. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us safe from ever venturing down that path. We pray for our sister churches that they would understand the danger of what they are doing. We pray, God, you'd call them back to a faithful and true proclamation of the word. Lord, we pray that as we hear this exhortation, as we see Paul pleading with tears running down his face, but that same heart would be our heart. Lord, let us hear this exhortation first in fear, but let it transform us into a people who love. God, have your way among us today, we pray, that the Holy Spirit would work in Jesus' name. Amen.